Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Safarova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Before we start today's interview, I have a gift for you. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies, free download, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. It is F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. And our guest today is Brian Evergreen. Brian used to be an internationally competitive chess player. He also sat in Carnegie Hall, then transitioned to AI and corporate America, worked at Accenture, and became former global head of autonomous AI co-innovation at Microsoft. Welcome, Brian. So great to have you with us. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. Brian, so your background is so fascinating. I don't often meet someone with such a diverse background. I myself started as a concert pianist. I was a singer as well. Then I was a management consultant, a banker. And so it's very nice to meet someone who also has such diverse background. I agree. There's the, Every time I meet someone that that's spanned various disciplines or had a music background, it's always so interesting to see how like just just last week someone who uh, I I met someone who had was an archaeologist before they got into tech right and just an anthropologist and hearing how these various backgrounds then sort of become superpowers for them is always super extremely fascinating to me so let's start with that how being competitive chess player and a singer musician gave you competitive edge in your current area there's a couple great <laughs> aspects that I've that I've just noticed over time that that they've contributed. So one is that I'd say chess, learning chess at a very, very young age and competing internationally in in tournaments, I think gave me a lot of sort of intrinsic skills that I didn't realize until later that I'd been developing those, right? Until they till I learned on the job that, you know, that other people weren't thinking the same way. And so an example is that, you know, when you're, when you're playing chess, you're sitting and you're looking at the board and all the pieces that are on the board and you're just, and you're thinking through, okay, what do I want to do next? But you don't just move pieces blindly. I mean that you can, but you'll lose quickly. So instead you, the the better you want to be, the more time you spend setting your strategy and then each move based on what your opponent does. um, If it's something that fell within sort of a, a pattern that you'd already thought through, then you can move quickly in response. But if it's something you weren't expecting, you have to sort of reset and, and reevaluate your strategy. And then you're getting real-time feedback on how effective your strategy is because you win or lose um, based, and there's no luck involved. So it's not like other games where, you know, oh, well, I had a great strategy, but the dice didn't roll my way. Like it, it truly, whoever does have the best strategy will win. And so um, I'd say that's been really foundational to the way that I think about things uh, today and, and, and the way that I've thought about things as I entered the corporate sphere. Brian, and do you also pull something from your music background as well? 
I absolutely. I think both both chess and music. One of the things I talk a lot about that that I've noticed just have really um, contributed to the way that I show up at work today is that I sometimes refer to myself as an accidental systems thinker because I didn't study systems thinking formally in school, but chess is a systems discipline, right? If you get focused in on one piece in the board and lose sight of the overall board and the, and all the pieces in, in concert together, then um, you'll lose. And the same is true in music. If you're um, writing a symphony or if you're singing in a choir, you, you know, if Beyonce sang in a choir and she didn't, if anything, downgrade her performance to blend with the rest of the choir, even though she's one of the best singers in the world, the the performance would not be, would not sound good unless she blended with the rest of the choir, which would mean she wouldn't be performing at her full capacity. And so, you know, there's a lot of lessons like that. I think also around leadership, like working with and, and having conducted and having sung under some incredible and um, conductors, I'd say that conductors are such a great example where you can have technical conductors that are, you know, extremely good at, at cueing the instruments at the right, uh, within the right tempo and um, very strong technical conductors, but the conductors that really make the music meaningful and just blow the audience away are the ones that also connect emotionally with the music and, and draw meaning into what the music is supposed to represent for the choir and the orchestra. And I think that's interesting then to translate that into leadership paradigms where you can be a good leader on paper and you can follow everything perfectly technically, but if you're not connecting the people that are working with you to the meaning of what it is that you're all trying to do together, um, it still rings hollow and people aren't necessarily, I mean, unless they're bridging the gap on their side, um, they're less likely to perform at their very best. I also noticed that because of my musical background, I do see situations in ways that other people don't. And yes, the systems thinking is definitely comes into play. It's very interesting how it works. Even when you're not trying to, it's always there. Exactly. You're right. You just can't, you can't get away from it a little bit. It's just <laughs> becomes inherent, right? And in, in, in just the way that you look at the world. Brian, in your book, I loved what you mentioned. I will read a quote. It says, the fact that the upper body strength of a gorilla is six times that of an adult human, or that whales have greater empathy centers in their brains, does not raise an existential question for humankind. Yet when a new technology is introduced, if it holds any correlation to what has previously been considered an exclusively human capability or skill, it is met with fear and or skepticism, as if what it means to be human is a checklist. What is your recommendation on what is an effective mindset to have as it relates to AI and related technologies? So first of all, thank you. I'm glad that you like that, that quotation in the book. And the, the thing I'd say is that the there is often I've seen an, a temptation to compare um categories of skills. So saying, well, machines can analyze. So which jobs analyze and therefore those jobs are at risk or machines can do math really fast. Well, which jobs involve math and therefore those jobs are at risk. And that's an extremely surface level um, and ultimately inaccurate uh, assessment. And I've, I've seen it happen, unfortunately, quite a bit, even from many well um, reputed uh, institutions. And so in terms of your question of, more, of a, more, a more effective uh, sort of mindset to have around looking at these technologies and, and 
considering what that means about us as humans and our jobs is instead to think um, to think about the things that we as humans can, are still uniquely um, good at. And I, by that, I mean, we are creative. We are a linear thinkers. We are, we're able to form social connections and belonging. And all of that leads to like iPhone moments, for example, a machine, actually the, the prediction of the total addressable market for iPhones in the late nineties, after the failure of general magic was incredibly low, a fraction of what it ended up being. And so if they were to make the decision whether or not to create the iPhone based off of what the machine was predicting, we wouldn't have smartphones today. Instead, Steve Jobs took a bold risk and said, no, I really, as, as a human, with, with my intuition and my ability to reason, I really think there's something there and I think it's worth trying. And I think that I'd say that as we look at machines and AI and these technologies, as they become more and more capable of various tasks, I would decouple jobs from tasks. I would decouple us as humans and what it means to be human from an individual task. If there's a, if anything, the, the process starts with exploration where we explore something new that's never been done before. And that that's a uniquely human trait. Once we've become experts at that thing and mastered it, then we operationalize it. Once we've operationalized it, now we have data and signal, and we can then translate that to machine language so that a machine can can do that repetitive thing. And so that that just means that we as humans have more work to do to go out and explore the next frontier. Very true. You had another very interesting quote as well from Edith Alkind, a computer science professor at the University of Oxford. And the quote was, machines will become conscious when they start to set their own goals and act according to these goals, rather than do what they were programmed to do. This is different from autonomy. Even a fully autonomous car would still drive from point A to point B as told. Consciousness is, of course, a more sensitive topic for people than capability. How concerned are you with the risk of machine consciousness? I would say overall, I am unconcerned at this point about the idea of machine consciousness for a number of reasons. Um, I think one of the main ones is that you can't recreate consciousness, if you, it, one, if you don't even know what it is that makes us as humans conscious. So if you asked any leading scientist in the world today, you give them a blackboard and a chalk, you know, piece of chalk and say, okay, write out the formula for human consciousness right? It can't be done. We don't know exactly what it is that makes us conscious. So the idea that we could take something we do not understand, and then through ones and zeros and math in machines, recreate that, I think there's a lot of hubris involved in that. And I can understand why, you know, some of the leaders that are close to the field have expressed concerns about the various harmful uses um, of, of how humans can leverage these technologies for harm. That, that I am concerned about. The idea that machines will somehow accidentally become conscious, I think, is um, is a failed premise. And the idea that if you think about when Deep Blue beat Gary, beat Gary Kasparov in 1997, something that for me as a chess player, Gary Kasparov was the world champion at the time, uh, that was a really big deal. But Deep Blue now is gathering dust in a museum. And yes, that was a big breakthrough in parallel processing and some of the learnings from that were taken in, in, you know, many of them were taken into future machine builds and designs, but um, 
it's not like one continuous stream of, of ma machines as this sort of esoteric entity gaining more and more capability to one central machine. It's, it's a string together of various individual efforts that then they don't, you can't add them together. You can't say, okay, well, the math we did for deep, for deep blue that beat the world chess champion, we're going to combine with the alpha go that beat the world go champion. And we're going to combine that with chat GPT. And now all of a sudden it's conscious. That's not there. That's a non sequitur fallacy. It doesn't work that way. And so um, that, I guess that's sort of my overall answer to the idea of whether or not we're at a point or nearing a point, which I, I don't, I just don't see it at this point. And I guess another thing that is going for us in this situation is that there's lack of economic incentive for someone to do it, because if you create machine consciousness and that machine consciousness can turn against you, it's just very hard to make it profitable endeavor and it will require such an incredibly large investment. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I wrote about that later in the in the chapter that you referenced about how there's very, very few organizations that would even, if it's even possible. So if we assume that it's possible, there's very few organizations that would have the computing resources and the talent. And there's also multiple scientific breakthroughs that would be necessary. Um, and so, and then yes, at the very end of that, what's the economic incentive for creating something that's a danger to all of humanity? So um, yeah, I, that's that's another reason that I I think that the concerns that have been lifted around that I think they, there is concern to be had about human misuse, but but not around runaway AI. Your book is titled Autonomous Transformation. Beautiful title. And transformation is of course about changing the nature and structure. It's about improving something. But how do you define autonomous transformation? So that was an interesting journey for me because I, when I was leading AI strategy for Microsoft US, I was meeting with Fortune 500 companies um, back in 2019 and saying, okay, we've been on this journey from analog to digital. And, you know, first of all, how's it going, right? Checking in and then saying, okay, the next phase, once something's digital, that doesn't imply any kind of intelligence or any kind of automation. It just means that now it's digital, right? We, we see this a lot with moving to the cloud now it's okay now it's in the cloud now what right and so the next phase of that i've i've been talking about since then was that the next you know we we're going to move from digital to autonomous and the idea that something is not ai if it's not making decisions autonomously and by autonomous i i for lack of a better term i'd say without the interference of humans without humans needing to sign off on it and so if it's not if, if you have a system that and ChatGPT is a great example where there's no autonomous decisions that ChatGPT is making. You you query it, it, it leverages various sets of underlying mathematical formulas and technology and neural networks and all these great things. And it comes back to you with an answer, but it's not making any kind of decisions. So technically it's ML, it's machine learning. It's And, and it's a very powerful machine learning, but it, and, and some would argue machine teaching, but that's still not, AI. Um, and so that's the first thing I'd say um, in terms of uh, autonomous transformation is this idea that um, as we're moving from analog to digital to autonomous, digital transformation obviously was moving about analog to digital. And, but the problem I ran into when I was setting out to define autonomous transformation was that digital transformation has become a blanket for basically anything that plugs in. 
And so I first went back to the roots and thought, well, what about all those initiatives that we've been calling digital transformation, but that haven't resulted in true transformation? What, what, what would be a better term for that? And so when I went back to the roots, like you said, um, transformation means to change the nature or composition of something. And, um, and so I thought, well, what, a, what's a better word for when you're not changing, when you're improving something, but you're not changing the nature or composition of it. And it turns out the word the, the dictionary definition is for that is reformation. And so in, in attempts to create more clarity for these discussions, I, I created a, a little two by two, like a good consultant. And, um, one of them is, you know, digital reformation, which is where you're moving from analog to digital and you are vastly improving and, and creating more efficiency for whatever it is you're doing, but, but you're not, it's not being transformed. It's basically the same process, let's say, but now it's faster or it's more efficient digital transform. And an example of that would be like what we see in the airlines where when you're booking a flight, you used to have to go in person or call a travel agent. Now you can book it on your, by your own, you know, by yourself online. And um, it's the same process and it's much more efficient. But the, the end-to-end process of booking a flight and checking in and all that is more efficient now that there's digital elements to it, but it's the same process. So that'd be digital reformation. Digital transformation is when you're truly transforming something like we've seen with streaming from Netflix or Uber, where it's introduced at an entire new factor uh, to the economy and with the gig economy. And then autonomous reformation by, you know, along the same vein would be where you're using autonomous machines to do the same exact process that was being done either digitally or by, you know, by basically manually before. And so that would be what we're seeing Amazon do in their warehouses where they're having machines lift and, and, sh- and move um, loads from one, one end of the warehouse to another, especially heavy things um, with machines, which is great. That's more efficient. It's safer for humans. Um, and that's autonomous reformation and autonomous transformation. I don't think we've had our iPhone moment of, you know, world light lighthouse world stage. Here's, I know there's many organizations working in that direction, but I don't think we've actually had the the breakthrough that will make, um, the phrase autonomous transformation, um, as well known as, um, digital transformation quite yet. And then the last piece of it I'll say is that both reformation and transformation, Assume that you're starting with something that you're transforming or reforming, but sometimes you need an act of creation and you need to create something new that hasn't existed. And that might not reform or transform anything. It might just be brand new. And so that's sort of the lexicon I've I've proposed as a way for us to talk about these things. Thank you, Brian. So let's talk a little bit about what role AI plays in autonomous transformation. Because when people hear the term autonomous transformation, some people may be thinking about a process where all humans were replaced by machines, but I know this is not the case and how you speak about autonomous transformation. It's more about machines taking over repetitive work. And this allows humans to move from operations to more creative and supervisory roles. Can you expand on this? Absolutely. So I think the idea, if you think about us as humans right now and the work that we do as across all jobs, we're there's some of our jobs where we're maintaining value that's others have relied on, right? Where we're continuing to create the thing that we sell as our product um, over and over and over again. And it involves several manual steps. And then there's other areas of the work that humans do where we're, I call it commissioning expeditions into the unknown. Like 
we still haven't solved, we, we haven't determined what it is that we need to do, uh, how, how we're going to solve cancer, right? That's not, it hasn't been solved yet um, or cured is a better way to put that. Um, there's, there's other areas of value creation that have not even been thought of, or maybe they've been thought of, but no one's quite figured out how to go do that. And so what I'd say is that the, the premise of the idea that we're just going to automate all the work that we do now and all jobs, and then one, it's, it's, it's the technology, I would argue, is not at the point where we could do that. But two, what I'd say is that that assumes that all the value that we have to create as humans, that we've already reached that point. So now it's just time to automate as much as we can and, you know, sit back and and enter a wally like state. You know, if you've seen that Disney or the Pixar movie, WALL-E, yes. where we're just basically floating around and machines are serving us. I don't think, I mean, personally, that's not a future I'm interested in in living in. And so um, what I what I propose instead is that we look at the um, the if we decouple humans and 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 jobs and tasks, which often I think in the in the conversations that we're having around these things, they're all combined into one. And so we have this form of job protectionism that um, comes into the fore, which is that the current class of jobs as they exist with with the tasks that make them up must be protected at all costs. But then that presents a longer term economic risk to the overall organization if the rest of the market is moving forward. And then on the other end, we have job fatalism, which is saying, you know, all all jobs are, are going to be replaced by machines. So let's just make way for our, our robot overlords. And and then the issue there is, like I said, that, that that basically assumes that we're done creating new value as humans and create the creating that new value is something that does require human expertise or even human exploration. And then in the middle, what I propose is job pragmatism, which is to say that these technologies and, and the capabilities they have will transform the way that we work. And so, and, and when leaders, and so therefore leaders, it's on leaders to create, to set a workforce strategy at the same time that they're setting a technology strategy. Because usually by the time that you, when you, when you sign a new purchase order for a technology, it's going to take at least six months, in most cases, over a year or two to get to the point where it can be put into production. And if at that, at that same point, that leadership team is setting a strategy for the workforce transformation that will be related to that future state with the technology, then the, those either, and especially if they're starting with an expansionist mindset as opposed to cost-cutting mindset, they could create new product lines that require many manual steps because it hasn't been operationalized yet. Or they could... Um, you know, a lot of times what I've seen in, in practice is that sets of tasks that were not being done because the, the the folks on the ground were overloaded with all the things that needed to be done are the first things that are being made autonomous. And that's freeing up more bandwidth and more just mental clarity for, for the operators. And they're able to move from operations to stewardship where they can start being a little more proactive instead of just trying to keep up. Um, so that's a little bit that I'd share around the, the sort of vision that I have for how autonomous transformation will change the nature of how we work. Thank you, Brian. And in your book, you mentioned that only 13% of AI initiatives get into production. Why most AI initiatives don't make it into production? That is a really good question. And um, to read it, you're going to understand the whole nature of my answer to that. You're going to need to read the book. <laughs> but um, but no, I, I, I'll share some of the thoughts on that, which is one is that I would say that we, so I initially set out to answer that question, thinking the answer would be related to strategy, related to technology, related to 
and the economics of it to talent. And what surprised me, because if you look at it, seven out of 10 top publicly traded companies in the world right now, um, or at least the last time I checked, were technology companies. And so that sort of proves that the technology is at the point where the, the economic potential is, is proven, right? Um, if you think about those top companies. So it's not that the technology isn't capable and can't be put into production. So then you have to have to go back and say, well, what is what is it then? And what I've uncovered and what I what I've um, continued to see time and time again is that it's actually um, so a social problem. It has to do with the way that we lead and manage our organizations. And so one big difference between technology companies and manufacturers or um, banking, you know, financial institutions or insurers or retail company like any any other sector other than technology is that te at technology companies, the there, there's three factions in every organization. There's the technology faction, the business faction, and the industry faction. And at tech, and if you think about it, 100 years ago, the dream job that you could have was to, at least in the US, was to move to New Dearborn, Michigan and be in manufacturing. And that was your shot at meeting some of the Jeff Bezos's or the Elon Musk's of the time that had all of these resources and might shine their light on you and you could you know, really, really make something of yourself. And then 50 years ago, that shifted to being a business leader, right? And, and with um, the rise of shareholder primacy. And then over the last 30 years, technologists have gone from the back room um, right. If you think about the asking IT to come fix your computer and then they go back downstairs versus now being in the boardroom. And so um, now you have these three equal, very intelligent, very uh, often very educated sets of experts that all believe that they know what needs to happen with a bias in the direction of whatever it is they're an expert in to solve whatever the, you know, the issue or the challenge at hand is. And then they end up spending all this creative and political and um, strategic energy faced inward, and we're divided by our expertise. Now, back to those seven of the 10 top companies are technology companies. At the technology companies, the industry faction and the technology factions are the same. They, they, they overlap, right? They both have the same background. And so they're able to speak the same language and understand each other um, readily. As opposed to in manufacturing, for example, where folks that are, you know, have an engineering background from a mechanical engineering perspective, um, that are deep experts and have PhDs, and and you know, then trying to translate what they're thinking about in the laws of physics to a computer scientist, right? That there's a natural potential for breakdown in in understanding that, and and a lot of times, I think in the 20th century, leaders have been working on. How do I manage this as a large machine, a mechanistic system? How do I get everything well greased? Because that's the leadership paradigm we inherited from the industrial revolution. But now as we look forward into the 21st century, the leaders who have already, and then the ones that will begin to shift that to thinking about their organizations like a social system, which is what they already are by definition, but are often not treated as such, will be the organizations that will win in this next era of artificial intelligence. I love that you brought up that point because it's so important. So I have a very practical question for you because I know it can really help people who are listening to this now. Let's say they have very demanding role that has very little to do with technology and they feel they're not keeping up with what's happening with AI and so on. So is there any reading and or listening regimen would you recommend 
to lead us to keep up to date on what they need to know to use AI and related technologies to help their companies stay competitive? I love this question, Chris, because there are so many people right now that are trying to tell anyone who will listen, hey, you're going to be left behind if you don't subscribe to my newsletter or if you don't you know, follow me on XYZ social media platform or, or buy, even buy my book, right? Um, and what I would say is that there are many organizations right now where they do not need to think about generative AI today. What they need to think about is what is the vision that I have for the future of my company and of the market and the customers or clients that I serve? That's the first question. You don't need to distract yourself with the pieces. And coming back to a chess analogy, it starts with vision and then strategy and then planning, which involves tactics. And then finally, at the very end, you decide which piece you're going to pick up as the first step in that overall progression I just shared. And so uh, right now with generative AI, it's or, or any AI sort of newsletter or podcast or anything, um, there could be this temptation of, I need to stay caught up. I need to understand everything that there is about all these things. And that's a little bit like studying every possible variation of a way that one type of piece can move, which is not useless. But if you're in an organization where, let's say your customer service numbers are just in the just way too low and and people are really frustrated with the fact that you're sending them to an automated you know IVR system and they just desperate they're, they're hitting zero as many times as they can on their phone because they're so desperate to speak to a human you might need an analog transformation there so adding on another you know layer where you're switching to chat GPT because maybe that's slightly better than or some kind of generative AI model because that's slightly better than an IVR system when maybe something about the nature of the value that you create and, and the issues that your customers are facing, maybe something about that means that you, that's the area where the human touch is the most critical in your whole business. And so you might need an analog transformation in that space. Um, you could do an AB you know, testing comparison to see, but um, so I'd say it starts with the first question should be, what is it that the future of my organization should be and the vision that I have for that? Then the strategy, what would it, what would need to be true for us to arrive at that envisioned future? And then all the way at the very end of all those things that would need to be true, yes, technology absolutely can and will play a role in that. Um, but you don't need to be an expert in every type of technology. You certainly don't need to know, you know, every version of a, of language models or all of that comes after you've set your strategy. I, I would argue, and, and and sure, while you're setting your strategy, having folks in the room that understand technology and what it is or isn't capable of will be helpful to to focus the discussion. Um, but you, you, you as a strategy leader do not need to be an expert in the technology to ask if anything, it could hold you back from, from having as grand or strategic of a vision. Brian, so if we unpack a little bit, setting the vision, I know you have some views on the way we solve problems right now is outdated and that we need to approach problem solving process differently. Let's unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Thank you. So I would say that problem solving is, I, I always talk about it as the craft of getting rid of what you don't want. And the, the problem is, the problem with problem solving, which I think is the name of that chapter, I've, I've, um, the problem with solving problems, um, is that it doesn't have any bearing on getting the future that you do or getting what you do want. It's only focused on getting rid of what you don't want. 
And so, it, and it will help you to optimize. It'll help you to cut costs. It'll help you to, and maybe that's, there's organizations where that's what they need at, at a given point based on their, you know, sort of economic status and their profitability. Um, and so, but, but the, the antithesis of that is future solving, which is the craft of getting what it is that you do want. So problem solving, if you think about a bottoms up planning cycle, you know, if you have all the, all the organizations or teams across the organization come up with a list of these are the 10 things, or these are the 50 things or whatever number that we think need to be solved that will, you know, optimize our cost and that'll make our customers slightly happier. Um, that's, that's, it's a rational process, right? That then gets floated up to management that then gets floated up to executives and it keeps going all the way up until, you know, a certain set of initiatives are funded and then off you go for the next fiscal year. And now let's, now let's measure and see how we do. Um, that process will never lead to an iPhone moment on stage for your company. And it'll never lead to introducing streaming. Streaming, when Netflix introduced it, was not to solve a problem. And neither was the iPhone moment and neither any great invention or that we've really seen that that is just shocked, um, sent shockwaves through the markets and caused everyone else to scramble on how on earth they were going to react to that were not developed as a means of solving a problem so much as a means of creating a future. And so that's why I introduced sort of future solving as a different, it's not necessarily, the, the terminology is new, but the, the, the process is not. Um, it's really, you know, it's been talked about since before I was born. I actually found videos, um, of, you know, from the 50s, right, of, of people talking about this paradigm. Um, but they weren't. So I'm, my goal is to recontextualize it and make it more practical for leaders, uh, because I do think that that is what makes the difference between great organizations that that continue to innovate and lead into the future. Um, and and yet the idea of problem solving is so pervasive in our narrative. And every panel you listen to, there's probably going to be at least one thought leader that says, "Well, you need to start with what problem you solve." And and I don't, you know, I don't say that with disparagement. Just it, once you hear it, you can't unhear it, right? You'll see it everywhere you look. And what I say is like, yes, problem solving is valid. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it, but if we want in the space of innovation, um, it, we need to do future solving instead. Brian, and do you remember that moment when you came up with this idea of future solving? What within your environment or something you've seen led to you believe in that is very important? That's a good good question. I would say, well, so first of all, I actually do remember where I was because I was really excited about it. And I took a break and left the coffee shop. I was in Norway in um, in the Lofoten Islands, which is where I went to basically um, just get away from all my normal responsibilities and, and try to finish as much as I could of the book. And um, I remember I remember having this sort of thought that, okay, we're, we're so focused on solving problems and but that's never going to get that's only going to optimize our existing value propositions and and so i remember that was when i at least had that flash in the pan moment of there needs to be another right another way of talking about it that helps leaders to distinguish between the two and then actually i i think it was my wife that as i was describing to her what i thought we needed to do and said i think it was actually that she said oh so Instead of problem solving, you need to do future solving. And uh, I, I remember at the moment, I felt a, a twinge of, oh my gosh, that is going to be one of my main things I talk about. And I'll always look back and know that it was your idea. And so um, 
so I, I actually think that it was it was she who first used the phrase future solving or proposed that as something I should uh, I should talk about instead. But um, but yeah, that for me. And then when I start sharing that feedback and that that sort of breakdown of the two to different executives um, that I you know that I'm close to that are C level executives at Fortune 500 companies, things I had even been trying to talk with them about in the past. They said, "Oh, that would have been a shortcut if you if you've been able to say this problem solving versus future solving thing, I would have gotten it right away." So, um, so since then, obviously, I wrote about it, and that's I talk about it quite a bit. Such a great origin story, and it just highlights the importance of taking vacations and having a great spouse. Yes, yes, absolutely. Where where possible, I um, I definitely. I mean, there's so 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 many ideas um, where just by talking through it with, with my wife or with close friends. Um, you know, that there's a phrase that technologists talk about called rubber ducking, um, which is that you describe a technical challenge that you you're having to someone who isn't the technologist that wouldn't. And when you're trying to break down something you're struggling with in JavaScript, let's say to somebody who does not know anything about JavaScript, then, um, you know, then you're able to kind of clarify, oh, as I'm trying to describe this to you, my brain basically solves it. And now I can go back and, and go write the code. Um, the benefit, at least, you know, in, on my side of this was that my wife also does understand a lot of these things. She's also ex-Microsoft. And so um, it kind of supercharges whenever we brainstorm together um, when we have a free moment away from our, our little ones. So, um, but yes, I think the environment in which you're developing ideas, people you surround your, yourself with, um, and the amount that you're willing to trust other people with your ideas, even outside of your family, um, I think makes a, makes a significant impact. I interviewed over 50 um, people across um, academia, other you know, authors and uh, research institutes and Fortune 500 leaders that um, you know, the book would be a fragment of, of what it is if I hadn't had their input. Brian, so... To come back to this question I asked earlier about reading, listening sources, 100% agree with you about the importance of the vision and so on. But for someone who is listening to this and they would love to get a recommendation because there's just so much out there and they don't know if what they are buying on Amazon or newsletters they're subscribing to is good investment of their time. Are there maybe a few sources or books that you would recommend to someone who wants to have sufficient knowledge on how to use AI to help the organization? They don't want to feel that they are not up to date on what's happening. So yes, absolutely. I um, I think there are. And um, some of them I recommend um, on online or when I can. Um, you know, I, I actually have a book list inside of my book that I shared as well. Um, and so uh, what I'd say, I'll first start with the principle and then I can give some specific examples. The principle I would look at is say, you know, look at the, the people's content. And if they're, if they're, you can tell right away their economic incentive for sharing this information in, in a lot of cases. So if they're sending signals like you're behind and you need to catch up and all you got to do is listen to, you know, or, or even there's these jokes I've seen on Twitter, right, that people have posted that is like, my boss thinks I'm an AI genius, but actually I just subscribed to XYZ newsletter. All of those you can tell, you know, um, pretty quickly that those are more, you know, aggregators of information that other people are, are generating where you're going to, you're going to get less um, specific expertise. And so I would say that first looking at 
at least I'll, I'll tell you what I do. I don't want to say that this is what everybody should do, but what I've done over the years, especially, you know, um, a decade ago, I was not in this space. I was in a different space. Right. And so, um, when I first dove into this about nine years ago, I, um, I started with saying, okay, well, who are the experts? And one of the first ones I found was Andrew Eng, right? Who, who wrote, who had this course on Coursera called introduction to machine learning that kind of became a standard for anybody that wanted to get into machine learning that wasn't already in the field at the time. Um, and then, so looking at who are the experts and then looking at what kind of, cause there's many experts that are just quietly doing their thing and writing their research papers. And that's not necessarily accessible. And then there are a handful of experts that are translating the, the their expertise into more accessible um, guides, workbooks, talks, um, you know, courses online. And so I'd say a, a few examples of those. I already mentioned Andrew Ng is one. Um, Cassie um, Korsakov is another. Um, she's a chief decision scientist at Google, and she just does an incredible job creating extremely accessible resources for people that either want to get into data science or also for leaders. Um, and she she translates it and and she keeps it fun and interesting while also um, while also being extremely valuable. Um, so that's th those are two right off the the cuff that I'd share um, in terms of things that you can just dive into you know immediately. I, I would I would look into both of their resources and then there's a lot of other um, maybe lesser known types of uh, folks that are that have been in AI strategy or you know, AI leadership roles at large, you know, Fortune 500 or Fortune 10 technology companies that have seen, oh, there's an opportunity for me to add value here by posting regularly about what I'm seeing. Um, so I'd say that, you know, those are also folks that could be, could be um, found and, and um, you know, and, and followed on online, depending on where people are, are finding their information. Thank you, Brian. This was extremely helpful. This is a great place for us to end this session. Before we do that, I have one last question for you. And then you can share anything else you would like afterwards. So my last question is not about the topic we're discussing today, but it's my favorite question to ask. Over the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations that changed the way you look at life or at business? That's a great question. I can see why you like asking it of people. I'd say that, um, so two or three. So one of them I already shared with you, which is this idea that, okay, we've inherited the industrial revolution sort of leadership mindset that views everything as a big machine. And actually, instead of going into industry 5.0 or continuing down the industry 4.0 path, it's time for us as leaders to determine that we, it's, that we should move into a new renaissance or enlightenment level era. Um, that, that I say would be the first. Um, the second, is it selfish if they're all things that I've written about? Oh, um, is that okay? <laughs> totally okay. The, the second would be um, that we need to transition from um, being data-driven to reason-driven, um, which I, I won't spend all this time sort of extrapolating now, but basically that a data-driven paradigm, the human is a computational resource, um, whereas reason-driven, basically, if we put the same level of rigor into documenting the human logic and, and reasoning um, for a decision as we do into documenting the numbers and, and weighing those in our decision-making um, that will actually make far more effective decisions and learn more about the way that we make decisions and be able to improve that um, than, what, than only being data-driven. And then I'd say the third 
um, is this idea that our economic systems in our in our organizations are kind of naturally um, driving out innovation because instead of following the scientific method of saying, right, like we ask questions and then we generate a hypothesis and then we experiment, then we analyze the results and then we draw a conclusion. Most of our organizations are saying, okay, we, we ask a question, we develop a hypothesis, we go get data from what other people have done and we prove whether or not it's worthy of investment before we go do the experiment, right? We make that investment decision first. Then when we do the experiment, instead of calling it an experiment, we're saying it's a, we're, we're going to measure people's performance and, and tie incentives to whether or not they can execute it um, when it still is technically still an experiment, but we're not calling it that. Um, so that was the third one I'd say that, that for me was a, a pretty big aha moment that we, the rationale sounds very scientific of how we've gotten to where we we are, but that the actual process in practice is not. Thank you, Brian. Is there anything else that you wish I asked you? And maybe I didn't ask you, but you wish I asked you or anything else you want to share? And also how can people learn more about you, where they can buy your book and so on? I don't think there's anything else that I, I wish you'd asked me. I, I, I really enjoyed the conversation and, um, and you've asked me some, some questions that I haven't been asked in this process of recording various podcasts or having conversation firesides and things. Um, so thank you. Um, I'd say that, yeah, the last, probably the, the main thing is that I, you know, the only other thing I'd share before sharing how to reach me or, or learn more about me and my work is that um, I really, I'm really, ex I'm, I'm trying to build a future where all humans can thrive and have access to create value and, and that we as a humanity and society can move into a brighter future by design as, a, as opposed to sort of accidentally falling forward into the future or backing into the future. And so I hope anyone listening to this will, will join me on that journey um, because I, I really think that we as leaders, um, we, we can make that, those determinations and, and um, boldly you know, design and create the future that we want. Um, and then in terms of how to reach me or, or, or follow along with the, the journey that I'm on, um, I'm on, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, I'd say I'm most active on LinkedIn at this point. Um, I've got a newsletter there and I, I post there pretty regularly. And then of course the book can be found anywhere that you buy books, uh, autonomous transformation, creating a more human future in the era of artificial intelligence. Thank you very much, Brian. Again, really appreciate your time and uh, the work that you are doing. For everyone tuning in, our guest today again has been Brian Evergreen. Check out Brian's book, Autonomous Transformation. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach using well-managed strategy studies, free download, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach, F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care and I look forward to connect with you at the next session. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.